you would, please remain standing and take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're continuing this morning in Ephesians 1, and I'll be reading from 1 to 10. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. And you may be seated. As I mentioned earlier, today is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And for those of us who love the Lord and all those who are created in his image, we want to stand with those who are oppressed and abused and attacked in our world. But today is a day that has been set aside to especially bring our pleas to the Lord for his protection for the unborn. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In Genesis 9, says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And in Psalm 100, verse 3, it says, know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people. Isaiah 44 says, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things. And in Psalm 127, it says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. In Jeremiah 1, God says to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in your mother's body, I chose you. And then Job says in Job chapter 10, You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews, you have granted me life and steadfast love. Human life is precious because each one is made by God in the image of God. And God forms each human in the womb 
his divine hand making each one wonderful in his sight, each reflecting something of who he is. And so any attack on any human life at any stage is an attack on the image of God, attacks on the fragile and the defenseless who bear that image are a declaration of war against the God of the universe. Attacks on those in the womb whom God has formed are acts that God condemns as worthy of death, acts that even the approval of is worthy of death, just as all sin is worthy of death. And so, let us plead before the throne of God today for mercy and deliverance from those who inflict and permit such attacks. But let us also know that there is hope and forgiveness even for those who have done so. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so pray with me this morning. O Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. Lord, this is what is prayed in your word and the Psalms, and we echo that prayer this morning. Lord, would you forgive our ambivalence to the war that is waged against you with the unborn? Your ways are perfect. Every life is a gift and a reflection of you. So today we come before your throne and we offer our pleas, asking for your mercy and your grace and your power to preserve the lives of those that you put in each womb. Lord, would you change the hearts of those who see your creations as simply an inconvenience. May the rights of our King supersede any rights that those who are your subjects may claim. You are Jehovah God, our Lord and our King. Before you we bow and in your hands we trust, knowing that you will vindicate your name. May we be faithful and lovingly speaking the conviction of your truth. And for those who know the pain of abortion, may you grant repentance and then the knowledge of forgiveness because of the cross. May you grant the joy of being blameless before you. For, Lord, we have all sinned and we all fall short of your glory. We are all worthy of death, worthy of eternal punishment. But because of the cross, we have hope. We know that there is forgiveness in Jesus. And so it is his name we lift and his name that we honor and his name that we glorify. And so, Lord, we come and we want to make much of Jesus. And Lord, we want to be sensitive and aware of the assault on your name through the unborn. And so, God, we we ask for your sovereign protection and your hand to intercede to preserve those who reflect you. And God, we come before you, though, and we ask for 
wisdom and understanding as to how we are to respond and to show you in our response. And Lord, we ask for grace and mercy and compassion and forgiveness for those who have even been a part of doing such things. And so, Lord, may it all be to the glory and praise of your name. We commit and trust in you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Join us in singing of that, that grace.
this morning, would you teach us um, how to offer our praise and our lives and our time and our submission and our devotion and our resources and our influence and our money um, before your throne. Um, you're worthy, and we pray that um, through this service we would see that more clearly, um, that you'd speak powerfully through my name, through your word, um, that you convict us of sin and send us out to live uh, lives of justice and humility and obedience before you. God, these things because of Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1 today. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5, we will see that believers are predestined by God to salvation. Predestination is the reason for salvation. Now for some people, hearing about predestination is like pouring cold water on Christian zeal. For some, it's like putting salt in a wound. For others, it's a trigger word. But for others, it's like a soothing balm for their soul. And it often depends on you know, how you think and what you think and what you've been told or how you read the Bible and things like that. Some people consider it an intellectual, lifeless, philosophical, sterile doctrine. But others consider it life-giving assurance that drives evangelistic fervency. I have heard believers decisively declare, I don't believe in predestination. And then some will say, I am so thankful because it is the reason why I am not going to hell. Paul's motive, as one person put it, was to rouse hearts to gratitude to set us all on fire and fill us to overflowing with this thought. But predestination has not historically uh, been the most popular topic. Fifth century, Augustine was told that the doctrine of predestination is an obstacle to the usefulness of preaching. In the 16th century, John Calvin had to state that preachers should preach no less on the deity of Christ and the Holy Spirit in the creation of the universe than on predestination. And the question does come, should we just skip it? Should we just ignore it that it's there? Uh, should we talk about it? Should we preach about it? It is a biblical doctrine, and so the answer is, yes, we need to talk and preach it. Uh, we can't ignore it. Yet, we need to acknowledge some things. We need to acknowledge that with this and some other things that people have strong opinions about, many, many strong emotions surrounding predestination and stems from strong feelings about right and wrong and justice and often comes from a heart that is deeply burdened for the lost someone who deeply cares for the lost and for some reason they can't seem to harmonize uh, two seemingly opposed doctrines God's sovereignty and human responsibility and yet in scripture they're not enemies, they're friends. And Paul here in Ephesians 1.5 is focused on, on being awestruck at being saved, at being awestruck at what God did to bring him to faith 
And uh, at the same time, you know, you might have an internal disturbance even, again, when you hear the word predestination. Maybe you're wondering about lost family members and friends. We all are. We all want our lost family members and friends to come to know Christ. And some of you might be wondering, well, how is it fair uh, to create someone destined to spend eternity in hell? So there's these internal disturbances that are going on in our hearts, but also the external conflict. Because often this doctrine has turned into arguments with fellow believers and, and these, these uh, uh, arguments over things that we have no control over, but we like to say we have a say in. And I've found that backstory is important. Like we talk to people, and just be real with each other and you know, remember, everyone's got a story and where they came from and how they came to the views they hold and everyone's got a unique vantage point of understanding, right or wrong, uh, is flavoring their thoughts. I've also thought about this. I, I kept thinking to myself, what about the first century? What would it have been like to be the first people who heard this read out loud? And what I found was, and it's kind of an obvious point, but the first century, it wasn't as big of a deal as it is to us today in the sense that they were actively resisting an ungodly culture, not the works of God, not the works of fellow believers, uh, not the ideas of fellow believers. And what they were doing was they were getting the context and the intent of God quicker than we do because they knew the language, they were right in the middle of the context, and so they weren't, wouldn't have pushed against it as much as we did uh, do, but there was still resistance. Now you think about it, there were Jews that were familiar with the Old Testament that would know about the doctrine of predestination from the Old Testament. So they would have readily known about it and believed it, okay? But Gentiles, they have ideas of fate and destiny rolling around in their head. It was a controlling, uh, a prevailing worldview that fate and destiny are controlling your lives. But I think they would have been more open to divine control, God's control in the world. But even so, there seemed to have been a need in the early church to clarify it and to uh, emphasize, you know, when Paul is speaking about this doctrine of predestination in, in Romans 8, excuse me, Romans 9, 10, and 11, those three chapters, he responds to either actual or anticipated objections. And I think it it's, it's makes sense because it's human nature to resist. We want to be in control. How many times in the Bible God says, you know what, you don't get to choose that. That's my realm. Most people, though, and I think probably all of us grew up hearing that we determine our destiny. That It's a fairly unassailable, uh, self-determining doctrine for many people. That you're in control. And think about it. We're selfish in general, so we kind of like that idea. Uh, we prize our autonomy over everything else. But that was not as much the mindset in the first century. And I think what happened through the, the, really, as the years went on and as the centuries rolled on, the church would lose some of the luster of some of the wonderful works of God, and it would need to be reclarified. And uh, a lot of the time, they lost the, the luster of the beauty of God's sovereignty. And so people like Augustine needed to come in and clarify, and, and even later the Reformers and, and, of course, the Puritans. And that each one of those actions was a reaction to some error or some diminishment of, of one thing so that it needed to be regained. And Augustine was fighting Pelagius' sin-denying, de damaging idea. The Reformers were, were fighting for free grace instead of Catholic dogma. 
but believers resist. I, I know myself, I had a former great resistance to this doctrine. I couldn't fathom a God who would choose. Now I'm so thankful. If, if it was up to me to keep it or choose it and keep it, I would lose it. Can't find my keys some days. I mean, think about the things you can't keep secure. Your own possessions, like where's my wallet, where's my phone, where's my keys? And we think that we can now choose our own salvation and keep it. That's a big leap. And how do we get to this kind of thinking? I, I, I need to do a little more background on this because I've thought this often. I think it, it centers in my mind around the Enlightenment era in the 18th century. It was a philosophical movement marked by a rejection of traditional social and religious and political ideas. The, the Enlightenment uh, stressed uh, pragmatism and rationalism. And the whole idea was, if you boil it down in terms of, of man's uh, relation to God, the idea of the Enlightenment was man by unaided human reason can work his way to God. And that has just filtered down into the air we breathe and the, and the water we drink. In the Enlightenment period, humanity's goals shifted from, from seeking to glorify God to gaining knowledge and freedom and happiness. Philosophers were stressing the values of, of skepticism and reason and individualism and liberty and secularism. They became very critical of religious ideas. They began to question Christianity and the concepts of morality that are in the Bible. They valued reason over faith. It had a profound effect on our founding fathers of the United States. And in part, it was the basis of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. That individualism is key, that you are to live life for yourself. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And secularism ruled. They became extremely critical of Christianity. Many adopted deism, which is saying, you know, God and nature are, are one. And if you want to know God, you need to study nature empirically. They rejected divine revelation. They had a very low view of the word of God. And you had the arts and literature and science being soaked in humanism. And then these ideas now permeate the way we think, the way we are taught, the way we are brought up. We assume some of these ideas as if they are absolute. We think man is inherently good, a blank slate, rather than the truth of human depravity. And I have found that the only way to cut through the darkness is to have something from outside my mind. The only way to cut through the darkness on this, not the enlightenment, as a friend of mine said, it's the endarkenment. The, the, the only way is a high view of God and a high view of Scripture and a solid handling of the Word of God, which is so crucial, where we seek authorial intent. What did God mean when he said this? a literal, grammatical, historical way of handling the word of God. We take the plain sense of the scriptures and the very words matter and it really happened in context. That's key to understanding and accepting the truth to the praise of God's glorious grace. This is a letter. Ephesians is a letter. And I hope you're not uh, looking at it uh, as a letter like you and I you know, use emails and notes and letters. Uh, it was not meant to be read as we read an email note or a letter, you know, briefly and ignoring the details. It would be more like, if you're going to equate it to that, it would be more like a love letter that you read and keep and go back to and just keep digesting and keep thinking about. But I think even more so, it's the heart of what 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture, and this is scripture, all scripture 
is breathed out by God, theopneustos, from the mouth of God, and it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, and that you would meditate on the word of God. The people that heard this wouldn't have said, hey, read it to us once, then throw it away. Some of us, we, read it, we don't even read the whole note, and we throw it away. Some of us don't even read the whole email. You know, some of you need to get some details. No, uh, we, they would have read it. People would have written it down. They would have read it again. It wouldn't be, oh, you know, I'm going to read from verse 1 all the way to the end. They would have picked the words apart. They would have thought about the context. They would have thought, what is this predestination? What is this glorious grace of God? What is this that God did for us, bringing us out of paganism and out of idolatry and out of, out of, out of slavery to sin? And the more you meditate on Scripture, the more you realize God's the reason for our salvation. Predestination is the reason for our salvation. It is the most beautiful doctrine. It is scriptural truth that we should adore God for and be comforted by and inspired by to, to pray for and want the salvation of the lost. And I've been thinking, what can I say about this doctrine that will help you today, that will help you tomorrow, that will help you the next day as you seek to glorify God? And I've concluded that I need to say what the word says as I understand Jesus and the prophets and the apostles taught it and therefore how I interpret it. And it might not be the same as your understanding. It might not be the same as, as where you land, but it will give you something to work with. And I want to point out to you the cause of predestination and the reality of predestination and the personal nature of, re, of predestination from the three words that, that really begin this, this verse, he predestined us. Next week we'll look at adoption, but we're gonna look at he predestined us, the cause, the reality, and the personal nature of predestination. So first the cause in verse five. Again, if you look at verse five, it says in love he predestined us. And you notice in love is in verse four and it flows into verse five. He predestined us, he there's the cause. God did it. This is God. Uh, as, as 1 Corinthians 1 says, by his doing you are in Christ Jesus. And, and what I want you to notice, and when we go through, we've been reading Ephesians 1, 1 to 10 every week, right? I want you to notice how God-centered these verses are. Every verse just saturated, permeated with, with God-centeredness in him, in Christ. This is what God did over and over and over again. Every verse just soaked in God-centeredness. We saw that God's purpose in election was that we might be holy and blameless before him. That's very practical for our daily life. Do you believe in Jesus, and are you becoming more like him? And then we'll see now that God's purpose in predetermining people is to adoptive sonship, to an inheritance in Christ, that no human effort, as misguided Jews would have suggested, is the cause. This is why Peter, when he was writing to, to the scattered Christians at the time, he wrote to God's elect. And he said, 1 Peter 1, 3, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He's saying it wasn't you. It was God alone. You realize that without predestination, we would have no Bible. We would have no salvation. Abraham, chosen out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Israel, chosen out of all the nations of the earth. Israelite remnant, chosen after the exile. Did you know that Jesus preaches, taught predestination? Let's just go to John chapter 6. 
We can go to Matthew 11. We can go to Matthew 13. I want us to go to John 6. And I want you just to look at, at several verses there with me. And here Jesus is talking about being the bread of life. And they are, they are questioning him. He has told them they need to believe in, in him. To in, they need to believe in Jesus. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent, verse 28. Uh, when you go through the Bible and you notice God's sovereignty, well, you'll notice this right next to it. It's always man's responsibility before God to confess his sins and to believe in Jesus, to turn from their sins and believe in Jesus. But look at John 6 and verse 37. Right after he said to them, you've seen me and you don't believe, he said this, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. That's predestination. All that the Father gives me, that's sovereignty and salvation. And then whoever comes to me, that's responsibility. You need to come, come to Christ. You need to believe in Jesus. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Jesus taught this. If you look in John chapter 10, you turn over several pages and you go to John chapter 10, and he's speaking of, him, of himself as the good shepherd, and he's speaking of his sheep. And he says in verse 27, John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What assurance. Secure forever, for eternity. And he says in verse 29, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. Aren't you glad, Christian, that you don't keep yourself a Christian? You're preserved by God. In John chapter 17, and turn over to John 17, and God the Son is praying to God the Father. And he says, Jesus says, verse 5, now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And then in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. That's predestination. In verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. That's predestination. Verse 11 and 12, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them and have lost, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus taught predestination. The apostles taught predestination. If you go over to Romans 8, Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, well-known verse. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
even in, in, in Ephesians 1, you know, he predestined us. And, and the idea is that God calls whom he will call so powerfully that you cannot resist it. It's like magnetic, that it's inescapable, that it's irresistible. That God's glorious grace is guaranteed to draw the elect to God. I mean, think about it. Why would God dangle a carrot out there and say, if you can jump and reach for it, or if you can reach for it and grab it, you can have it. That would be like playing games with us. No, he gives freely. Freely you have received. Freely give. And then he secures it. The love of God displayed. And he holds, he holds you. He keeps you. Like a parent securing their child. But even more so, Almighty God holding you. Holding your soul. Keeping you safe and secure. Given humanity's sin and God's justice and love, we ask the question, why do some believe in Jesus and why do some not? It tears at our hearts when we know people who don't believe in Jesus. Jesus said in John 3, verse 18, whoever believes in me is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Whoever believes, verse 36, in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. God lets them go in the way they were already going. And what he's saying to the believer is, he determined your salvation. Like Jesus said in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, fruit that remains. So the cause of predestination is God. Praise be to God. And the reality of it, again, verse five, he predestined us. The meaning of the word predestined helps you understand what it's saying, what it signifies. What does it mean to predestine? It means to mark out beforehand with a boundary beforehand, to foreordain, to predestinate, which is different than election, by the way. This is not redundancy. And you've got election in verse 4, predestination in verse 5, two different words. It, it is a form of restatement. But it turns, it's like he's turning the jewel ever so slightly to, to view it from a different angle and see the more the glorious grace of God. And you got election and predestination being interconnected, but it's part of the same beautiful, praiseworthy, wonderful works of God. Elect means to choose out from, to select from all humanity. But predestination means to mark out with a boundary beforehand, to foreordain, to predestinate. What it does is it, it describes God's action on behalf of his people not as his choice, but as his predetermination of them. That he has predetermined us to something. He's predestined us to something. And here we see it's adoption for an inheritance. And the choosing and the predestining happened before creation, before we were around. God determined who his people would be before creation. So predestination is the cause for election. Predestination is the reason for election. Predestination is the reason God chose you. He marked out beforehand that you would be brought into his family for his inheritance out of all humanity. And the reason God chose the saints out of the mass of humanity is because he predetermined their destiny. And we aren't just playing with words here. Words matter. And, and by the way, Paul wasn't writing a treatise here or some philosophical argument. He was just simply rejoicing in it. He was praising God for what he had done. And the Holy Spirit had him write it down. 
And he didn't give every you know, possible answer or, or explanation. So let's get over to Romans 9, shall we? We need to go over to Romans 9. Because Romans 9 is a treatise on it. Now let's go there for a moment. I want you to go there with me and, and see how this helps explain it. Then we'll go back to Ephesians 1. But Romans 9. You, we'll, start at, we'll start at verse 14. And then, and then we'll go back through the chapter a bit. But verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, this is quoting Exodus 33, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And he basically goes on to say, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the, the potter no right over the clay? So God's the potter, we're the clay, to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use, one for dishonorable use. This is the high point of Paul's argument in Romans chapter 9. But he began his argument, and we need to know this, he began his argument at the beginning of chapter 9 expressing his grief over the unbelief of his people, even saying, I wish that I could be accursed if they would be saved that I want them to be saved so much. But then the, he brings up the objections to God's choosing, and he, he addresses whether God's promise to Israel had failed in verse 6. That ever since God made the promises to the patriarchs, there was a distinction between those descended from Israel and those who truly belong to Israel, verse 6. That those who are merely Abraham's outward children of the flesh but not of faith, and then those who are of faith, who are truly of Abraham the believer, Abraham's offspring of the promise. You see that in verses 7 and 8. And what, what Paul does is he starts in history and he works his way back to eternity. And then he talks about Jacob and Esau in verse 11. He says, though they weren't yet born, they had done nothing either good or bad in order, and here it is, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And then he gets the next objection, whether God's unjust, because he chooses one and not another. And Paul says, by no means. And he doesn't speculate. He just quotes scripture. Exodus 33, God will have mercy on whomever he wills. He hardens whomever he wills. And then the next objection, but if this is true, why does he still find fault? Because no one resists his will. The objection is, oh, predestination makes you a robot because there's nothing you can do about it. And I love it that Paul does not offer a philosophical response to sort it all out. He just asserts that God is God and we are not, and we don't know the, all the answers to that, and he is the creator, and we're his creatures, he is the potter, and we are his clay. And that questions like God has failed, or statements like God has failed, or God is unjust, or God makes us robots, is demeaning God. It's accusing him of evil. You don't want to do that. You don't want to mock God. What you want to do, if, if we don't understand it, we want to acknowledge the mystery of his ways, and none of us understand it fully. We need to acknowledge the mystery of his ways. Paul's point in Romans 9 is that predestination solves these objections because it's ultimately for God's glory. It's not about us. It's not our intellectual satisfaction where you think you get all your answers, all your questions answered. It's who are you, old man, 
God is God, you are not. Has not the potter the right? He absolutely does. And he glorifies himself in his pottery, making one vessel for honorable use, one for dishonorable use. But his ultimate point is, God glorifies himself in his works. What does he say in verses 22 and 23? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order, the purpose, in order to, sh- to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. If you're a believer today, you're a vessel of mercy. And he wants to make known the riches of his glory. And here's how he chose to do it. And it says that he prepared us beforehand for glory. This should cause us to praise him. Now back to Ephesians 1. Praise the glories of God's grace in Christ. He predestined us. Our status as his people, therefore, comes as an utterly free gift. The free gifts of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's irrespective of anything we we possibly could have done or God foreseeing what we would do. And what I found, and it it really convicts me deeply that the, the, the people that don't resist this are the persecuted. They rejoice in it. They don't deny election. They delight in it. They, they're counted worthy. What do they say? We're counted worthy to suffer for the name. God chose us for this. That we, we end up wanting to deny or resist beautiful truth uh, because we want to be the determiner of our destiny. We need to accept the truth. And what we need to do is accept the truth about our death. You get into chapter 2, and it starts, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You lived this way. You were, you were a child of wrath, even as the rest. By nature, a child of wrath. And at the same time, you had all kinds of God-given ability to make all sorts of decisions freely. We have a free will. Every choice we make, we make freely for a reason. We, we, we always choose according to our strongest desires at the moment of choice. Uh, our will is our choosing faculty. Uh, fall, fallen humans have free will. But what they lack is liberty. What they lack is they have natural freedom, but not moral freedom. Only the Christian has moral freedom to actually choose what is good. Jonathan Edwards used a chair illustration, and he wanted to explain the difference between natural or physical inability and moral inability. And he says, look, the natural inability is you're chained to a chair, and you're physically unable to get up. You might want to get up, but you can't. You're chained to a chair. That's natural or physical inability. But moral inability, he said, is you're sitting in an easy chair and you don't want to get up. You don't want to get up. You don't want to get up and you will not get up. You can't choose against your nature. I can't choose to fly by flapping my arms and I can't choose to to, uh, birth a baby. The unsaved person does not want Christ. They will only want Christ if God plants a desire for Christ in their heart. No one seeks after God. Once that desire is planted, though, those who come to Christ do not come kicking and screaming against their wills. They run to Christ. They they come because they want to come to Christ. They now desire Jesus. They run to the Savior. There's rebirth, regeneration, quickens a person to the spiritual life so that Jesus is seen in his irresistible, beautiful 
awesome sweetness, that Jesus is irresistible to those made alive to God, that every soul alive to God wants Jesus. As Jesus said, all whom the Father gives me will come to me. And in regeneration, God changes your heart and plants a desire for himself within you. God did it. God is the cause of predestination, but he's also the reality of predestination. But also, I, I want you to see the personal nature of it. If you're a Christian today, you've got to take this and go, wow, he predestined us. He predestined me. He did this. Titus 2, verse 11 says this. The grace of God has appeared that brings salvation to all men. That is not a universalistic verse that says everyone's getting salvation. We know that for sure. The grace of God has appeared that brings salvation to all men, all kinds and classes of people. Grace knows no barriers, recognizes no distinctions, brings salvation to young and old and rich and poor and male and female and slave and free and Jew and Gentile, like you and me. But we bless God because he has blessed us in Christ. Real people like you and me, you and I. And then you ask the question, but why did God choose me and not someone else? I don't know. You don't know. We shouldn't even go about guessing. Just believe what God's word says, and if you, if you are following Christ, you keep following him, and you tell everyone you can about Jesus, and tell them to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. We don't know why God chose us and not others, and our hearts want others to come to Christ. But only God knows. Only God knows. That's why we are called to give the gospel to all. Have you ever thought what attribute of God or what uh, character uh, trait of God, uh, what reflects the character of God is, is um, shown in predestination? Have you ever thought about that? Like what, what attribute of God is, is, is on display or reflected the most in predestination? Some would say the, the mercy of God. Some would say the justice of God. Some would say the wrath of God. But look at the text, will you? Look at the text, verse 4. And you know the way our Bibles were, were put together. They got the verses now, and you got in him, excuse me, before him, in love, at the end of verse 4, in love, and then verse 5, he predestined us. It's love. It's the supreme display of the love of God. In love, he predestined us. He predestined you because he loved you. He, put, he decided to, to put his love upon you in a saving way before the world was created. In love, he predestined us. This is the supreme display of the love of God. In 1 John chapter 4, we are, exhort, are exhorted, Beloved, let us love one another. In verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We're to love because God Love is from God. And he has given it to whoever, verse seven, uh, 1 John 4, 7, has been born of God and knows God. The ultimate cause is God is love. God, God's love of himself in, in the trin as Trinity is a perfect love. It's, it's a model for our love. It's, think about God's love of himself as Trinity. The intimate love of the Father for his only Son and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The eternal Son is the first object of the whole of the Father's love. John Owen put it this way, the Son is in the bosom of the Father in the eternal embraces of his love. 
Think about it. The eternal, self-sufficient love among the persons of the Holy Trinity is then made manifest. 1 John 4, 9 says, made manifest among us because God sent his only son into the world. God's love was manifested into the world, into the cosmos. That God has a love for his creation in general. And this world needs a savior because it hates Jesus and his followers. And humanity justly deserves condemnation because of its sins. But here is a special love of God for sinners in particular. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Specifically, God loves his peculiar, special, chosen people he takes out of the world. 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The believer. J.I. Packer put it this way, God loves all in some ways. He loves some in all ways. If you're a Christian today, God loves you in all ways. Thomas Manton said this, the oldest friend you have is God. He actually said the ancientest friend you have is God, who loved us not only before we were lovely, but before we were at all. He thought of us before we could have thought of him. That celebrates life no matter, no matter what anybody says. That celebrates life more than anything. Predestination explains all of life. It's why your God-given life matters. Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and no better truth to celebrate than predestination. You think of all the, the horrendous things that have happened in history and all the, all the things that cause us grief even, all the sad things that happen under God's sovereign hand. But think about this. In the 17th century, when some of these things were getting worked out, about 25% of children died in childbirth. We can't imagine the grief of all those parents. Another 25% of those who lived died before age five. We can imagine the grief. The American, American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists say that in our time, about 10 to 25% of all clinically recognized pregnancies end in miscarriage. And we believe that all, di all infants dying are saved. So did Spurgeon, so did Charles Hodge, so did B.B. Warfield. We believe that. And so while sometimes the reason for a child's death is not of, of, of God-honoring way like an aborted life. But think about, think about miscarriages. Think about precious children dying before their life gets started. We know that God is good and gracious and just and he will do what is right and we can trust him. It's because of predestination. I thought a lot about it this week, how we should speak about predestination. No matter where you land, no matter what you think, no matter what you hold to, how should you think and speak, but especially speak, the mouth speaks out of that which fills your heart. How should you speak about predestination? I came across a, um, a recounting of how the uh, canons of Dort were gathered and theologians in Europe, and pastors and elders gathered in the Netherlands, in the Dutch town of Dort in 1618 and 1619, and they were dealing with the Arminian controversy. But they laid down ground rules 
for how to talk and preach about predestination. I thought we were very telling and very loving. They said this, just as by God's wise plan, I know this is long, I will, I'll post this up on our, on our blog on our website, it's a long quote. Just as by God's plan, by his wise plan, this teaching concerning divine election has been proclaimed through the prophets, Christ himself, and the apostles in the Old and New Testament times, it has subsequently been committed in writing in the Holy Scriptures, so also today in God's church, for which it was specifically intended, this teaching must be set forth with a spirit of discretion in a godly and holy manner at the appropriate time and place without inquisitive searching into the ways of the Most High. Without inquisitive searching into the ways of the Most High and for the lively comfort of His people. You and I need to speak of predestination with discretion and discernment. Some believers uh, love to dive into the depths of it and scale the heights of it, and others, the very mention of it causes them doubt and worry. If you're talking to unbelievers, some could be so hard-hearted, right, and scoffing at doctrines like this, or maybe the Spirit of God starts to work as they genuinely question things. But there is so much misunderstanding, so much mockery of this doctrine that we need to lead into it gently and, and be discreet and discerning. And we need to do so with reverence. Paul talks reverently about predestination in Ephesians 1, in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Because it is clouded in such mystery and much misunderstanding, we need to speak reverently as Paul did. I love what John Calvin said about it. He said, when we discuss God's eternal counsel, we must always restrain both our language and manner of thinking so that when we have spoken soberly and within the limits of the word of God, our argument may finally end in an expression of astonishment. That we would be astonished at the greatness of God for his glory. That we would speak of his works for his glory. When you talk about predestination, are you doing so to bring him praise? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you doing so to magnify his grace, to the praise of his glorious grace? Repeated three times in this chapter. When you speak about predestination, you need to, to essentially say, for from him and through him and to him are all things. I don't understand everything, but to him be glory forever and ever. Before you speak a word about predestination, you need to emphasize humanity's sin before God and God's just punishment of that sin and the deep love of God, and then the doctrine of predestination makes sense. If you think of the order of the book of Romans, first, Christ in the gospel, then admitting your sinfulness and God's grace, and then fighting your sin, and then you get to chapter 8, and it's the, the, the suffering of this world, and then foreknowledge in chapters 9, 10, and 11 that brings comfort. You've got to talk about predestination in a way that would lead a sinner to Christ, that would bring God eternal glory and would bring God's people comfort. That you would speak of the glory of God and the holiness of God and the helplessness of sinners because human pride falls dead before predestination. I said once wrongly that Peter on the day of Pentecost wouldn't have dared to talk about predestination as he preached that sermon. And then I went and checked. 
Acts 2.36. After he tells them, repent and believe, turn to Christ, he says, the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, all whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Rest on the ground of Christian assurance. You might ask the question, am I elect? In the 16th century, the Roman Catholic Council of Trent declared that if you said you were elect, you were guilty of rash presumption. They said no one can determine for certain that he is assuredly in the number of the predestinate. If you were in the 17th century, Arminians said similar, there is in this life no fruit and no consciousness of the unchangeable election to glory, nor any certainty, except that which depends on a changeable and uncertain condition. Put it in man's hands, and if it's up to us, we're going to lose it, and we won't even want it. But God says you can know. He writes to the elect. Paul says to the Thessalonians, we know God has chosen you. You can have a living faith in Jesus, assured of in your soul that you belong to him, that you have peace in your conscience, and you can desire to obey to the glory of God. And, and let's just say those, those moments in your life when you don't feel completely assured at all times. Use the means that God has appointed for working his grace in you the word of God and prayer. Let's say you're struggling with ongoing sin and it's keeping you from a stronger relationship with Christ. Remember his mercy. He, he's promised not to quench the smoking flax or break the bruised reed, the struggling believer. Don't be worried when this doctrine is mentioned. Just You need to worry if you have given yourselves over to sin. You need to worry if you have given yourself over to the cares of the world. You need to worry if you have given yourself over to the pleasures of the flesh. You should fear if that's you. There are some who genuinely believe, God knows, but there are some who pretend to believe, God knows. If that's you today, here is your opportunity to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Do it. For your joyful assurance, as Peter says in 2 Peter 1.10, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. You do that by living for Christ, dear believer. The outflow, the result, the outcome is assurance and desire and even an excitement to evangelize and to walk in obedience. And it's because God did it for us. You, you look at the prayer at the end of Ephesians 1, it's that we would grasp these things, that we would know these things, that we rejoice in these things. And then you say, but how exactly did all of these things come to be? I don't know exactly. I just know God did it. I don't have every answer. You don't have every answer. Believe that God did it. I personally do not want to be guilty of twisting it in my mind and miss the point and rob God of any glory. His glory he will not give to another. This is why Paul closes Romans 9, 10, 11 with this, oh, the depth of the riches and the glory and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Jonathan Edwards said, every ray of the sun reflects it. Look up the line. Look to Christ. 
This is a reflection of the glory of Christ. Worship Jesus. We are sinners. God is just and he is love. And as for me, predestination is the reason I wake up every morning to serve Jesus. God's grace in saving should not cause you to doubt his goodness. It should cause you to doubt your ability apart from Christ. Lord, we thank you and praise you that you alone save. And even now, every believer, our desire is to please you. And you are even using us and the choices we make on a daily basis to sanctify us, Lord, to make us more like Christ. But we didn't get in the door on our own. We didn't open the door, Lord, you did. You opened our hearts to the gospel. We praise you. We thank you. We love you. We worship you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and join us as we close singing Grace and Peace?
before we go, just a few announcements. Uh, one, we're having midweek at 7 p.m. in here, Wednesday night. Uh, five reasons why predestination is the answer to everything. We'll have teaching, question and answer, and prayer time. Also, pray for our upcoming missions trips. And if you, in case you weren't here last Sunday, uh, we, are, we, have, we have brought Andrew McNeil back on staff part-time in an assistant pastor role as he works on his PhD. We're very excited about it, so welcome him back after a brief hiatus. And um, let's, as we close, and we leave it all in God's hands and do what he has called us to do, let's, let's hear the words of Romans 11, 33 to 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. And Lord, to you be the glory forever. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign.